See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Amen. This past week in men's discipleship group, I used a word colloquially, the, the way it tends to get used in general conversation. I didn't use it technically as a Bible word. And Conrad raised his hand and said, Pastor Russ, what does that mean? It was specifically the word saint. What does saint mean? It was a great question. Because the way we use it, we draw our definition out of Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholics teach that there are certain people on earth who are able to do such good deeds that they do more deeds than they need to get to heaven. They are able to do wonderfully above that. They, they hit the mark and go way over it. And because they go over it, they even have all these good deeds to spare. They can give you some. And so you can ask them, you know, say this, say that. Can you give me a good deed so that God will be happy with me? And this is an integral part of Roman theology. The Bible doesn't know anything about that. And in fact, as you know, the moral requirement to stand in God's presence is absolute perfection. It is literally impossible for a saint, as the Roman Catholics define it, to exist. Because if you were to be absolutely morally perfect every second of your existence, the only thing you would accomplish is you yourself being barely worthy to stand in God's presence, and in fact, all human beings have sinned. Nobody does that. That's the covenant of works, and nobody goes to heaven by it, except one guy. There's this one guy named Jesus of Nazareth who walked into heaven and was able to say, I deserve to be here. But other than that, nobody else does that. Uh, you need grace. No saints in the Roman Catholic sense can exist. But on the other hand, the word saint is a Bible word. In fact, when the epistles are started, the authors often say, I'm writing to the saints at Ephesus or the saints at Thessalonica or what have you. What does the Bible mean by it? Well, scripturally, um, the term saint 
comes out of the temple. The first place we find it in the Holy Scriptures is in Leviticus. It is a word for being set apart. And it doesn't have anything to do in Leviticus with people generally. It has to do with stuff. There are bowls and knives and ropes and cloths that God takes to himself and sets them apart and says, this is something that is going to be used for a holy purpose. It is not a, a normal secular purpose. It is reserved to me and for what I am doing, specifically to the services that take place in the temple. God meets with his people in Leviticus in the temple uh, through these holy services, sacrifices, ceremonies, that sort of thing. And what is set apart to those things he uses to be in fellowship with his people. The temple is God's way of overcoming the separation between sinful man and holy God. Uh, there's a level of reconciliation that happens there. God wa walks with people and things are set apart for that. Well, the term in the New Testament is the same word, but it is applied to people. It is applied specifically to you people. If you belong to the Lord Christ, the Bible calls you a saint, which doesn't mean you're morally perfect by any stretch of the imagination. What it means is that God has taken you like those things of the temple, and he has set you apart to his holy usage. God wants to be reconciled to people he wants to, to meet with people in Jesus Christ and bridge the gap between people. And he's taking things to himself to use to do that. And you're the rope, you're the curtain, you're the knife, you're the bowl, you're the thing that God has taken to himself so that he will use you for his holy purposes in Jesus Christ. So the next time that relative that doesn't like you and accuses you of being self-righteous and says, you just think you're a saint, you tell them they're absolutely correct. Yes, you are. You're just not self-righteous, but you're a saint. Now, the reason why I'm going into this is because in English, there's a couple of terms that are directly related to sainthood that don't sound like it in English, but they are the same word in effect in the Greek text, and that word is sanctification. Beginning in chapter 4 and at verse 3, the apostle said, now this is your sanctification. And everything that he has been talking about from that verse has been about you being sanctified. Well, what is the term sanctified in the Bible? Well, in the Bible, it's the word for being set apart. If you are to be set apart, you're a saint. The act of setting you apart is sanctification. So Paul begins this section of the letter and says, God is in the process of setting you apart from the world, making you holy. Again, holy, saint, they're related terms. 
God is setting you apart. It's a process. You are growing in being set apart. This is your sanctification. This is what God is doing to do that. So you're not perfectly there yet. You have been chosen for this. It is your purpose. But God is processing you to be set apart. And what have we been looking at since chapter 4 and verse 3? Well, let me just remind you of the list. The first thing he talks about is sexual morality. There is a sexual morality that God desires of his people. It is a sexual morality that aims at developing godly marriages where husband and wife are living in a godly way. That's the first thing Paul brings up. After that, he talks about brotherly love. Uh, God wants to build in the Thessalonian Christians a greater and deeper love for the brethren. They have it. Paul emphasizes that. Now, you do love one another, but I want you to do it more and more. Again, the concept of being set apart, sanctified. Um, The next thing was minding your own business. God is setting you apart for his holy usage. You need to be sexually holy. You need to love the brethren. You need to mind your own business. This is part of your sanctification. Uh, Your nose has a lot of dirt on it because you put it where it doesn't belong. Um, I'm picturing my cat from yesterday that found there's a hole into the wall at my house. Um, Came out totally, you know, all dirty faced. The cat went where it wasn't supposed to and it got all dirt. Well, The apostle says, this is your sanctification, mind your own business. Uh, He says, you've got a job, and this is your sanctification. Work quietly at your job, at your calling. This is God's sanctifying you. You probably don't think about that when you go to work. You probably think this is something totally secular. But the apostle says, no. God is in the process of setting you apart, and part of that is you work (coughs) diligently at your calling. Um, Then he brought us into a very large section that is you live in hope and longing for the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the dead. And this took up a lot more space than any of the rest. Uh, This is your sanctification. Look to heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ is waiting in heaven to return to the earth. This is going to be the most glorious moment in all human history. It belongs to those who belong to Christ. Live constantly knowing that the Lord Christ is coming. In a very real sense, he is going to come, stand on the earth. He is going to claim the universe for his own. Live in hope for that and realize There's going to be a real resurrection of the dead. This is your sanctification. Paul hasn't stopped that section. In fact, if you look at the last blessing at the end of this chapter, at the end of this book, listen to what Paul says again. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. So in 4.3, he says, we're going to talk about your sanctification. In 5.23, he gives a blessing where he says, now may God just sanctify you totally. 
And that seems to be defining the whole section. We're talking about God setting you apart. This is the way he's doing it. We're up to verse 12, but to the end of the book, we're still talking about this is God's sanctification for you. And it is kind of amazing how much the apostle says in not a lot of words. We're actually going to look at about seven more things. God is setting you apart from the earth. He is setting you apart to be used in the heavenly temple for his purposes. God has got to wash us in all kinds of things. And you Thessalonians, this is the list of God washing you. And the next one is you need to love your teaching and ruling elders and your deacons. What comes next is verse 12 through 13. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. I always feel a little awkward hitting this kind of passage in the Bible. Basically, I have to go to the pulpit and say, it's God's will for your life that you love me, which is really, really awkward. But it's the truth, and Paul is talking about, this is your sanctification, you need to recognize such people. Actually, technically, the term is Edo. And oftentimes, when I'm talking about what it means to know something, I will tell you there are two types of knowing. One of them is very experiential, where Adam knows his wife Eve and she has a child, which is very different than knowing something out of a book. And I will say experiential knowledge is no-sco, and then I can't remember the word for the other one. Well, it turns out this is the word. It is Edo, and it means to observe with your eyes, to watch. It means to intellectually know something, to kind of think about it, to meditate on it. Uh, it can be used to converse with. If you Edo somebody, you sit down with them with whatever the culture's equivalent of coffee is, and you talk to them. Uh, you have a mental understanding of them. This is a, this is a knowledge that's here, but it's in its own way, just as intimate, but it's not in any way experiential. Paul says you need to know, you need to converse with, you need to really get to know and make as your example those who labor over you in the Lord. In a Reformed church, that means you're teaching elders. That's me. It means you're ruling elders. That's Gene and John. Uh, it's your deacons. It is those whom God has called to labor among you. Uh, the apostle says, this is your sanctification. This is God setting you apart. You really need to take into consideration those who labor among you. Uh, this is a theme the apostles will return to from time to time. The writer to the book of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 7 says, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you. What 
whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Um, if you go looking for it, it comes up semi-often. God has called certain men to labor in the church of God. Uh, he wants you to think about the life that they're living because it's an example. It's a leadership by example. And so get to know them, think about them, converse with them. Um, but it's even deeper than that. The last part of verse 13, or the first part of verse 13, seems to bring it to an emotional level where Paul says to, quote, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. So, literally, I do have to tell you to love me. Um, we do some very, very specific things. What do we do? Well, Paul runs her list. We labor among you. Many of you are mechanics. You take tools and you repair 18-wheelers. Or you are carpenters and builders. You take tools and magnificent edifices come from your labor. Uh, many of you do many things. And you each have your own tool and you have the product that comes out of that labor. You know the satisfaction of watching what your efforts have produced roll out. When the, when the 18 wheeler turns on and it didn't do that two hours ago, there is just an amazing sense of satisfaction. Well, God has called me, he has called Gene, he has called Aaron to work on you. You are the focus of our labor. God has given us tools to minister. They are spiritual tools. Uh, they are the word of God and the spirit of God. And when we go to work in the church of God, you're the product we're laboring on. We want to see you grow. We want to see you come closer to Jesus Christ. We want to see you grow in wisdom. We want to see you mature. We want to see you uh, look more like Christ. And you're the finished product. <clears throat> when you grow, when, when you are, are in a better place, that's what we do. We labor among you. God calls us to work on you. Anybody who is called to do that, you probably ought to observe us. You ought to give us some serious thought. And that's what the apostle is saying, do. Watch us, consider us. We labor among you. We are over you. It's a direct quote from scripture. There is nobody in this room who is more libertarian at heart than your pastor. It is my natural leaning, seriously. Politically, that is what I lean to. I am no longer a libertarian, but I can't be because it doesn't match scripture. But in my general bent, yeah, that's, that's really how I, I'm, I'm bent. I don't like being told there's anybody over me any more than you do. But that's the flesh talking. That's sin. Um, God actually has created in the family, and the Church of Jesus Christ is a family. 
he has created a hierarchy and there are people over other people. And Paul here clearly says there are those over you, and that's in a reform context, the elders and the deacons. Years ago, before I had my own church, I was with a friend of mine who pastored a little country church. His name was Lim. He was actually my college's librarian, but he pastored on the side. And we were going out uh, to visit one of his parishioners. This countryfied, countryfied farmer was stepping out on his wife, and Lim had to go confront him. And we got out of the car, we came up to the house, guy came out to meet us, there were some pleasantries exchanged. And then Lim just had to tell him, look, Buck, I know what you've been doing. Everybody knows what you've been doing. Uh, you, you can't be doing this. You belong to, to Sandy Hook Christian Church. You're shaming Jesus Christ. You belong to the church. I'm really here to call you on the carpet. And this farmer took his thumbs and put them in his suspenders and said, well, now I belong to the Lord just as much as the two of you do. Who do you think you are to tell me something like that? Well, Lynn looked back at him and said, I think I'm the ordained minister of Sandy Hook Christian Church. God has given me this authority to call you on the carpet. I don't really like it. I mean, nobody enjoys that. But my due diligence is... I'm over you in the Lord. And people are talking about the fact you're a hypocrite and it looks bad on Christ. And so that's who I think I am. I'm the man who's called to do this. And you know, 18-year-old me respected Lim a lot. That is the way you do things. Lim understood his calling. Paul says, consider your elders. They are over you in the Lord. Now, that phrase is important, in the Lord. The apostle uses it, and it's not just applied. What's it doing there? Well, when you have a hierarchy, the guy above you is not absolute. There is somebody who is absolute in a hierarchy, but who is the person who is absolute in a hierarchy? Anybody here been in the Army? Major, sergeant, captain, you know, you got your ranks. Um, is the captain absolute? No, if the major tells you something different, then you got to go with the major. Is the major absolute? No, you got a corporal, you got a, got a colonel. Um, some people then put the supply sergeant over him, but that's not the way it's supposed to work. Um, at the top, you've got your commander-in-chief. He's the absolute. You have authority, but it's authority to do something, and the guy above you is only above you if he is doing what those above him are telling him to do. When the apostle says they are over you in the Lord, they are directing you to the absolute. The absolute in this case is the Lord God Almighty. We serve among you, we minister to you, we open up the hood and we repair the engine, 
but we do it strictly under the orders of our Lord Christ. And what happens if we go to messing with that engine in a way the Lord Christ did not tell us to do it? Is that okay? Can I just labor as I wish? I am a man under authority. Like the centurion said, I know what it means. I minister among you in the name of Christ, for Christ, to the goals of Christ, to the glory of Christ. And if I am outside of that, I'm not the authority. Consider your elders. They minister to you in the Lord. If what they are doing is not in the Lord, don't follow them. It gets very, very ugly if ministers of any strife are given absolute authority. We do not have it. There is one king, one shepherd, one bridegroom of the church. We labor for him. We care for his sheep. We protect his bride, but he is the bridegroom. And our way of ministering to you, according to Paul, is we are to admonish you. What does it mean to admonish? Well, if you have ever been a parent and you've ever had a wayward child, you are very, very aware of what it means to admonish. It's effectively sanctified and holy nagging. You know what they need, you know the, the need for their growth. They are somewhat rebellious. They kick against the goads, but you tell them and you tell them what you told them and then you tell them again and then you tell them again and you tell them again and you admonish them so that they ultimately will grow. Paul uses that phrase. He says, they labor among you by admonishing. In the Reformed tradition, we have a philosophical way of talking about that. We say that our authority is declarative. We have declarative authority. What do we mean by that? What we mean by that is in the church of Jesus Christ, no one will put a gun to your head and make you do the right thing. We don't have any guns to do that with. We tell you what God says. We are given the very words of God that came from the very spirit of God. And we get up here and we tell you what these words are. We declare them to you. But you can look us in the eye and say, I'm not going to do it. Now, there are certain consequences that we might bring to bear. And we might say, we'll need to take you before the church. We may put you under discipline. This may lead to you not being able to come in the building. But nobody will ever put a gun to your head and say, okay, you have to do what the pastor says. That's not the way it works. Rather, the pastor declares to you the word of God. You can rebel, but that doesn't mean there's no teeth. You see, those who labor among you in the Lord, they are in the Lord. Which means once we tell you and tell you and tell you, we step back and our job is done. But that doesn't mean the Lord God steps back. 
the Lord God is everywhere. He hears everything. We labor before his face, and anybody who is an elder or a deacon and doesn't take that seriously is an absolute fool. We conduct our ministry before the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. He watches everything we do. And once we have declared his word, we don't bring any real con consequences because they're not ours to bring. But the Lord hears. We are promised in God's word that God will uphold his word. We are promised that God will not allow himself to be mocked. So once we have stepped back, you are dealing with God. And if you are comfortable with saying, I don't think God will do anything now, you go right ahead. You, know, you do that. It doesn't work out well. You know, you know the worst way that works out? Is God lets you go on thinking that way. If God really, really, really wants to treat you as somebody who is not in his family, he will just leave you alone. The minister will step back, and you will in your house say, well, he's a blowhard, but I don't have to listen to him. And then you wait for God to bring repercussions, and they don't come, and then you go, well, see, I'm fine. You get to judgment day, and there's always repercussions then. The very best thing you can hope for if you have needed admonishment is that the Lord God slaps you. Because when God deals with you that way, he's dealing with you like a father. If somebody else's child in public is acting like a fool, you just walk away from them. They're somebody else's kid. But if your kid is acting like a fool, what do you do? Right. And you do it because you love them. You do them because it's your kid. That's you saying, you belong to me. And so we are declarative in our authority. We declare to you what God has told us to say. We step back. And if God loves you and you're rebellious, you get the idea. But it is declarative authority. In the church of Jesus Christ, no one will ever coerce you into doing what is right. In the earliest of churches, uh, those who were leaders in the church may have taken this a bit far. Have you ever wondered why in Roman Catholicism you have guys in funny hats called bishops? They're really high up in the hierarchy of Roman Catholicism. They're above local ministers. In the second century AD, you had a guy by the name of Ignatius of Syria. Uh, Ignatius was on his way to be executed. He had been captured by the Romans for being a leader in the Church of God. They were hauling him off to Rome to throw him to lions, and that's apparently what happened to him. But along this fairly long journey, Ignatius had the opportunity to write seven letters, and he sent them off to Christian churches. And uh, Ignatius's heart, he knew he was on his way to be killed, but his heart was to care for the churches. And there was a lot of false teaching happening in the churches. 
So he actually wrote these letters about the false teachings happening in various places. And one of the things that he constantly emphasized in these letters was cling to your bishop. Your bishop has been given to you in the Lord to watch over you, to care for your soul. Which, by the way, is direct biblical language. Um, again, going back to the writer to Hebrews, 10 verses after he says, you know, you really ought to respect your leaders, uh, Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. Ignatius took that deeply to heart, and he told the people in the various churches, reject the false teachers and do it by laying hold of your teaching elder. In scripture, the term episkopos can be translated bishop. We translate it as overseer, which is more literal, and we apply it to the teaching elder. But Ignatius said, grab hold of him and, and listen to him, and you will be safe. Well, in the second century AD, if you were a teaching elder in a Christian church, you were under sentence of death. The Romans did not like you, and if they caught you, they would kill you. How many people sign up for that kind of position who aren't the real deal? I mean, you're going to hit one or two. I mean, that's just human nature. But really, when, you know, the pay is terrible and they want to crucify you, you don't get a whole lot of applicants. And so Ignatius was saying, grab hold of your bishop. These are men who love the Lord Jesus Christ so much they're willing to die to minister to you. So honestly, his advice makes a lot of sense. As the years rolled on and the death sentence went away and it became socially beneficial to be a minister in the Church of God, these letters of Ignatius still kind of goaded people to say, follow your leader no matter what, and you ended up with ungodly men in the pulpit and still saying, Ignatius said, you ought to follow me. Uh, that led to the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church and where you would ultimately need the Reformation. But Ignatius wasn't wrong in his advice. He pointed Christians to those who loved Christ enough to be willing to die to be able to minister in the church. And those are the people you want to cling to because they have been given to, quote, watch over your souls. If, if you don't think that weighs on my shoulders, believe me. The Lord is sovereign. He is totally in control of everything, but his very word says he has called me to be an under-shepherd to watch after you. There are wolves that will bite you. There are agents of darkness that want to corrupt you, and God has called me and Gene and the elders, the deacons. We have been called to fight the wolves, and that is a serious calling. The goal of that calling can be found at the end of verse 13. Paul says, be at peace among yourselves. That is a general admonition. God calls the church of Jesus Christ to be at peace. 
But it is specifically the elders and the deacons calling to maintain that peace. It is a sacred peace. It is a godly peace. It is where God tends to give the blessing of eternal life. We sing Psalm 133 often probably to the point where we don't even think about it to the level we ought to. That psalm says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Well, what is the goodness and the pleasantness? Well, it is like the precious oil poured upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, the priest is the one that stands between you and God, works the sacrifice, running down on his garments like the dew of Hermon descending from the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So in Psalm 133, the peace of the unity of the brethren provides the environment where God tends to give all the blessings of eternal life. And where peace is not there, where souls are being munched on, where conflict and turmoil is crushing the church, um, you don't have the peace, and God often pulls away the blessings of eternal life. And so this is an incredible calling that the elders and the deacons have. Um, listen again to the, uh, the writer to the Hebrews he says, obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. It would be unprofitable to you. <clears throat> the minister, if he is following Christ, is walking in the path of the Prince of Peace. He is attempting to establish a kingdom of peace, a peace that is built on the righteousness and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is totally unprofitable for you to give him a heart attack. It is unprofitable for you to make his job a living heck, which is what I have to default to in the pulpit. Um, the, the writer to Hebrews just said that. 2,000 years ago, whoever God called to write the letter to the Hebrews was very aware that one of the things that Christians would have in the afternoon on the Lord's Day is they would tend to have roast elder. Uh, they would go home and they would talk about their eldership and they would uh, cut and they would criticize and they would belittle that's not really, that, that doesn't surprise the Holy Spirit. That's been happening for a very long time. And the word of the Lord says, don't do that. They have been called to care for your souls. They have been called to protect you. And honestly, if you don't make their job a joy, if you make it a heartache, that is unprofitable for you. What is the profit? Well, the profit is what's in Psalm 133. It's that God will pour out the anointing oil on his priest, the, the full priest, Jesus Christ, 
that the ministry of Christ will be known in the church and that eternal life will be happening. The dew of Hermon, which brings about all the good fruits that comes out of the church, will be bringing that life essence to bear so the fruits will be taking place. And in fact, every blessing of eternal life will be happening. Uh, that, that's what God has called us to. That is a high and holy calling, and this sermon could be to the elders and deacons, but the biblical text is actually to you, the average Christian. This is God's sanctification for you. Get to know, follow, consider your elders, deacons, pastor. Uh, they minister to bring you this peace. It is profitable to you when we succeed at that. Help us do that. It is to the glory of our Lord Christ, and it brings about an environment where all the blessings of eternal life happen. I mean, seriously, what a deal. This is God's sanctification for you in our Lord Christ.